0: All right, welcome. Uh, my name is Dr. Dan Fabui. I'm an emergency physician by trade, I'm a former Obama administration, biodefense and public health appointee, uh, health contributor and communicator and uh, a, a big advocate for vaccine equity. Um, and here I have a couple of my colleagues here and we have one of our colleagues who unfortunately is not able to join us, but will be actually with us um, via technology. So we hope to get that started. So with that said, I'm going to have um, Sandra, uh, Dr. Sandra Quinn, introduce herself.
1: Thank you, Dr. Dan. Good afternoon. Now, this is dangerous. The lights are down and it's (laughs) after lunch. Okay, so we know we've got to be lively. Um, I'm Sandra Quinn. I am a Professor and Chair of the Department of Family Science at the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland, and I'm Senior Associate Director of the Maryland Center for Health Equity, and I've been working on vaccine disparity issues for many years. During the pandemic, Dr. Thomas and I have been PIs on a local RAPO, rapid ethnographic study, Communivax. We're one of six teams. Our team has been focused on working with African-Americans in Prince George's County, Maryland, right outside the district.
0: All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Quinn. Um, Luis uh, Dum, mm-hmm. MBA, can tell us about yourself?
2: Well, it's so nice to be here. My name is Lois Prevordum. I'm the director of adult vaccines at the International Vaccine Access Center, which is at Johns Hopkins University. And I've had you know, the opportunity to work with such wonderful people uh, sitting, sitting on the panel today and have been working in Baltimore City on an initiative to uh, ensure that that communities have a voice, that it's not about you know, reaching a certain percentage of people vaccinated, but really hear from them. I've also had the opportunity to work closely with Pastor King, who's uh, I see on the screen here, I wish he was here in person, but uh, you know, a great partner in crime who's really made the difference in getting churches involved in
3: vaccination.
0: Thank you. Um, Helen Landaverde.
3: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Helen Landaverde. I am the proud and humble CEO of Health and Hospital Elmers. We were the epicenter of the epicenter during the peak of the pandemic or the beginning of the first wave. Um, And we serve 1.1 million people annually. And I'm proud to say, as of yesterday, we've serviced over 140 unique individuals getting vaccinated, fully vaccinated. That means both vaccines.
0: All right, and uh, thank you. Uh,
4: Dr. Thomas. Honored and a pleasure to be here. And what, about a year and a half, I've been on social media with Dr. Dan. We're meeting for the first time in person. Uh, amazing what we've been through. I'm a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the University of Maryland in College Park, nine miles from the White House. And I'm, I'm really here to cause trouble. I'm here to cause some good trouble. <laughs> uh, I know I need an amen corner out there. I have an amen corner out there? All right, counting on you today. All right, thank
0: you. And last but not least, uh, Dr. Reverend uh, Terry
5: King. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. So sorry I can't be there with you personally today. And um, I'm a former senior executive, retired from Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, where I had the opportunity to found the Office of Minority Health. Most recently, along with Lois and the Health Department in Baltimore Hopkins and the Health Department, I had the opportunity to lead a Baltimore citywide interfaith effort uh, in terms of vaccines across Baltimore City and we just had the great opportunity to end the access and equity issues related to COVID-19 vaccines and from there I'll say one more thing the health department which is where I just left after my early appointment that's actually now moved into my church because they realize the, the power of, of the trusted source. So that partnership is, is stronger than ever. And it's great to be with you. Thank you
0: so much, Dr. King. All right, so with that, um, if you can queue up those slides, um, it's more for the audience to understand where we are and where we've been. Um, This is uh, the road um, ahead and what we've all been through and experienced. So um, let's kind of go through that and then we'll get the panelists here um, including myself to kind of dive into what the work we've been fortunate to do even though we've been on Zooms all throughout this time um, and finally our meeting really in person. Um, But the chemistry was always there with the sessions in which we had. So let's go over some of the things. This is us on paper. I think you have it already on the agenda. Um, And we did our introductions, uh, but we also have to acknowledge the sponsors which were mentioned earlier on, including Sanofi and actually the fact that we're actually here with the National um, Minority Quality Forum. Uh, With that said, so why focus on flu and uh, COVID uh, vaccine equity? Is it an issue? Has it been an issue in your community? Has it been an issue that we've all been seeing and how do we actually address that or begin to address that. What have we seen? So these are just some stats out there. There is obvious evidence that there is a gap uh, in different populations, uh, different groups, and the, the lower likelihood of uh, actually uptake in those communities. So that's some of the stuff on these de- the graph data again very uh, clear that there's a gap and that gap is that delta that space in between the two graphs that you see there in essence that's where we are so we looked at what we experienced with COVID with the multiple bumps in cases and also with regards to equity so what are some of the things that we think are the biggest issues or at least what we really need to address anyone
2: anyway. I'll, I'll start off I think there's a number of different issues. Uh, sometimes we can't forget that access is still an issue. We talk a lot about hesitancy with vaccines, but it's not just about you know people being concerned about vaccines. When we're thinking about equity, we have to think about can people get to where they even need to get to do they have a voice? I think we saw this during the pandemic where you had uh, to register via computer. Well, not everybody even has the computers or has the know-how or the ability to, you know, sit there for hours and and try and enter things. So I think those are still some of the things that uh, continue as well as an issue of the health system itself and whether there's trust in the health system because i think at the core of everything it's about trust
0: i totally totally agree
3: Uh, i think for us at the hospital level or at the provider level i think for us was having the understanding that we can't judge our community because there were so many rumors during the pandemic so many rumors still with flu and then you add in COVID in the pandemic and then these rumors took over And I read a study that for every one health thing that we put out, the Department of Health put out in New York City, social media came up with three times as much as misinformation. So misinformation, and then when our patients would come through our doors with this misinformation, I think it was really important for us as providers, as healthcare leaders, not to judge our patients. Because as as some of these rumors were really bad and, you know, it was, you know, for us as well-educated individuals, these rumors didn't make any sense, but for our patients and our population, they believed it. So I think for us having no judgment was the biggest barrier against the vaccine. And I, and I think once our community, and that's why I feel like in the borough of Queens, we were the highest vaccinated borough in New York City, because we realized very early on that we needed to, to meet that community without judgment. We were like, we understand that you feel like, you know, you think G5 created COVID. Okay, but let me give you the science. Let me give you the anatomy. Let me give you how this vaccine is gonna help you. And I think once we got over that barrier, the uptake of vaccination became high, both in our Black and Latino communities.
0: Luis, any any thoughts on that?
3: Um, So I would add a couple of things. I mean,
1: one of the things we saw happen in Prince George's County was when Maryland got the vaccine, we were getting about 73,000 doses in the state, for the state, right? By, that was early January of 2021. By the third week, we were, uh, the governor had so expanded, and then by the fourth week, had so expanded eligibility that there was this huge you know, demand from many of the communities in which we work that actually wanted to get the vaccine, but there were still only 73,000 doses. And so, and the African American Latino communities in our county were characterized by a state official as refusing to get the vaccine. It was not a refusal. It was, there was not a vaccine to be had. And that was a huge strategic error. But I think that one of the other things, too, and it's been um, a barrier this I'm going to tie flu in, because that's been my area of work for a long time, is that providers also didn't know how to answer some of the the special questions that arose with the COVID vaccine. It is an emergency authorized vaccine initially, right? Operation Warp Speed, well, that didn't go over well as language, right? For many communities who didn't believe that maybe it was done fully or correctly or thoroughly, that it was politically influenced, many of the communities were saying, but are there people who look like me in those vaccine trials, researchers on those trials? So one of the big things was also helping healthcare providers learn how to answer questions about who was in the trial, why did it go so quickly, what enabled that, what was the safety and efficacy, did it vary by race and ethnicity, so I did a lot of work also with just providers on how do you answer those questions so that you can work with your patients and work with the community. And that was really, I think, and continues to be uh, an ongoing issue: is helping providers have the tools ready for them to have those conversations.
4: Thank you, Stephen. Well, let me say I concur with with all the barriers, and um, uh, would just simply say that, um, you know, I'm coming to you from the hell no wall. That's what the barbers say. They're dealing with the people at the hell no wall. Even some of the barbers and stylists were at the hell No wall. So there's a journey. And if we respect people's journeys, we realize that hesitancy does not mean never. Mm-hmm. So when you come to our events at the barbershop, you don't feel like you're coming to a clinic. You feel like you're coming to a party. We got a DJ there. We got barbecue. We got a party atmosphere. And when people show up, we say, now take all those wild crescents you have inside. Because we got the doctors in there ask them and Dr. Dan you know what they come hesitant and they left hesitant but vaccinated you don't have to change their world view you don't have to convince them that gravity is real just treat people with dignity and respect and your folks out there know that no self-respecting black barber would ever say I'll get you in and out in 10 minutes and it doesn't matter how much hair you have you're gonna be there all day all right so why not go where people already have trust and deal with those health professionals. Uh, Many of our barbers and stylists now, we've trained to become certified community health workers. Now they're frontline health workers. They can help us with care coordination. But Dr. Dan, we cannot abandon this hyper-local approach as the surge rescinds, or we'll lose the trust that we have built.
0: Totally agree, and uh, with that, and as you're talking about the community, uh, Dr. King, I'm gonna get you in here. how what are barriers did you face, and how did you surmount
5: those? so let's let's pick up where Dr. Thomas just left off. He said, "Go where trust is already established." So in terms of barriers, I think uh, our governor made a very wise move. First, our mayor rightfully said in Baltimore that there was an access and equity issue. All of the vaccines were located in areas of Baltimore City where black people did not live. That was the first thing that was done. And what the governor did that was wise, he skipped the healthcare system, Mm. came directly to the pastors. Now, that was no gripe on the healthcare system, but what he had to understand was history and trust. And, And history is not ancient history. Right now, in Baltimore, as in several cities across the country, there is unequal treatment. That's an uneasy fact that we need to contend with. As we're putting facts out there, there that the fact is people of color, black and brown bodies, often in healthcare care institutions are not treated equally. So the stories that were brought my way, I confirmed them. And first by confirming them, I gained legitimacy or street credit because they understood that even though I was working with the health department and Hopkins as a representative of providers, I was working for them. And that has remained. My client and customer other people in Baltimore, other the black and brown people in Baltimore. So the trust was established in my institution, in me, not because I'm a church, but because of the work I was doing for them before COVID ever came along. And because I had that reputation, I was not willing and would not be willing to jeopardize that credibility for another initiative. So by skipping it and coming directly to me, we gave Lois and I 75 pop-ups across Baltimore involving over 300 churches, synagogues, and mosques. And because we had a stretch into the Jewish community, because I had <laughs> with my brothers in the Nation of Islam and the Christian churches, we were able to get it Done. Yeah. So the barriers existed, but we. Were- Thank you so much for that.
0: So, if I were to tie all of that together, what you've heard is there are barriers, and the barriers are based on actually identifying trust, having data that informs all of that. And I would add, in my own experience with some of this community work, understanding that that history that you alluded to, there's a trauma in certain communities that is existent that actually precedes all this, right? But has led to that tru- a distrust, right? Um, and mistrust um, of the medical system and the government. You gotta call it out. You mentioned that, you mentioned acknowledging that, saying that, calling it out what it is. You have to be with them shooting in the gym, y'all. Quote Drake. Um, and you have to know what's going on because when you're there, now you can not only just leverage that for a COVID or a pandemic, but also the other preclinical illnesses, the pre-COVID um, illnesses that had existed before. The question we received in the community was, why Why are they re- willing to help us with the vaccine now? We've had diabetes, we've had hypertension. You heard the panel earlier. Uh, we've had other medical problems, heart disease. What happened? So, our charge to you while we're on this topic is make sure you keep those systems that you had in place for COVID, build those up and leverage that into actually starting to do preventative care. So you are with them shooting in the gym and being able to foster that trust is what I would say. All right. So with that, um, let's go into this other question, uh, really trying to figure out what, um, things we can do to promote vaccine equity. So I'll start with you pastor. What things do you think we need to do? Is there anything else that we haven't said?
5: Well, I, I think one of the things is to combine vaccine equity with health equity, period. I think leaving vaccine out on an island is a mistake. I think going to people that are hurting, that are unhealthy, that have experienced health inequities with a needle in your hand first, is not exactly the way you want to open the door. I think you have to begin the conversation with their environment. Listen to them. So, so, so wait a minute. If I'm living in a community where rats literally are biting my children, come on now, if I'm living in an environment that's toxic, if I'm living in an environment where I cannot exercise because it's so dangerous outside my door, and the first thing you want to talk to me about is about vaccine equity, give me a break.
0: Preach, preach pastor.
5: <laughs> <laughs> hear, me. hear where I am. Don't, Don't come to me with this suit and tie behavior. All the things you just said, hear about my diabetes, hear about my hypertension, hear about my poverty, hear about my unemployment understand my environment and show some empathy and respect because it's disrespectful to come to me with a vaccine that's your priority that's not my priority and once you understand my priority now we can begin to have dialogue and we can eventually maybe get to your vaccine equity that's where conversation has to begin
0: Thank you, Pastor. All right. Great point. Great point.
5: <laughs> Others? Any,
0: any other thoughts? Yes.
1: Let, let me build on um, Dr. King's point, because number one, amen. Number two, <laughs> That's right. you know, and, and as Dr. Dan said, I mean, literally people would say, why do you care now? Oh, you care now because if I get infected, I can infect you. Mm. Okay so I think absolutely it's is this that requires a couple of things more than a couple but number one is some long-term sustained commitment by our our health systems our hospital systems they get you know they do community assessments they have resources and obligations to serve not just the people that walk in the door, but help those people from walking and keep them out and healthy and functioning in their world. So I think number one is we really need an ongoing, not today because it's COVID, but an ongoing commitment. And Laura Lee and the Center do a lot of that, and Helen's Helen's organization is part of that. To say we're here for the long haul. We're here because. You know, we've got mental health and stress that's in trauma right now. We've, you know, all the things that we know exist long before COVID. So I think that's critical, but it's also true for health departments. And it's true in a couple of ways. To sustain them so they're not grappling with every, you know, we, had, we have a mil, almost a million people in Prince George's County. We had 400 people in the health department at the start of the pandemic, and how many of those have the skills to really truly be engaged with communities, to have the time to build the partnerships with the churches or the mosque or the community-based organization. So we need investment in that infrastructure in, in communication and in community engagement and all those things, not just for COVID, but over the long term. If if I I could also add to
2: that, you know, I think it's about putting community at the center and not in the sense of listening to them for messages. Because it's it's not about what you say, it's really about what you do and how you enable community members to really have a voice and figure out how is this going to work. Because it's the best ideas that come from the communities. They know what kind of resources they are, there are, and can take things and take a different spin on things. So I think we have to be true to what we call community engagement and not be there just listening to them, but to enable them to come up with some of the solutions. And that's something that we've been doing in Baltimore City. It's by no means there. You know, I don't want to to suggest that, you know, everybody comes up with ideas and then they happen, but it's moved a lot more forward than we would have ever have expected. And the ability to be able to sit at the table as an equal partner is just absolutely invaluable and something that we can't stop. We need to make sure that the community voice has the ability to come up with the solutions and implement solutions.
0: Great point. Uh, Helen or Steven? I think,
3: you know, In speaking of doing, I think partnerships like the ones we're sitting here, I mean, we've been meeting now for almost two years. I've stolen so many ideas from this man, <laughs> you know, from the bishop. And I think as a hospital, we can all do our part to meet where our community's at. And I think for for us at Elmer's, and we sit in the most diverse zip codes in the nation, actually where we sit, where Elmer's Hospital sits, we speak over 150 different languages and that represents 92 different cultures and religions. So for us, understanding, being there with the community members, it was not only just for the vaccine, we actually opened our doors even wider. We would ask when you came to get vaccinated or get tested, When was the last time you saw a primary care doctor? Do you want an appointment? Do you have food insecurity? If you do, here's a list of pantries. If you Can you apply for WIC? Can you apply for SNAP? You know, so we actually included all of that, but that came also from listening and from partnerships. I think if there's a call of action when we're talking about equity overall, is that everybody in this room should leave with a friend. You should make a new friend, a new partner, and be like, after this conference be like what is the next thing we're going to do for our community how can we help each other because we're right i can't think of everything and you can't think of everything and while bishop can think of everything because he has god on his side always (laughs) (laughs) you know it's the partnership you know and for us as a healthcare provider you know for us it's not just covid for us it's the hpv vaccine it's the flu vaccine it's the polio vaccine because One of the things that we're starting to see is a decline of people just taking vaccines overall they're just saying no and with that you know can come an outbreak of the measles we do not want smallpox back we do not want varicella i mean your your physicians having that in our children is not something we want to see in our communities so doing this call of action is you know i think our biggest thing that we could do for each other
0: I think it is very crucial.
4: Um, Stephen, did you have anything to
3: add? Uh, You know, Dr. Dan, once
4: once you know, you owe. Mm -hmm. All right, folks, once you know, you owe. So when we talk about trauma, and it's been mentioned a couple times here, trauma uncontextualized looks like something's wrong with you. What's wrong with you? Rather than what happened to you. Mm -hmm. What did someone do to you? Uh, Communities that are... Traumatized and it's uncontextualized. What's wrong with those people? Oh, that's how they live. Why should we impose on them? That's how they live. They don't believe in vaccines. Our communities have been traumatized and we've not put it into context. So, the weaponization of the misinformation is new, just like the vaccines new. When in this country have we seen directors of health departments have to get security? When in this country have we seen NIH scientists have to have have security follow them and get death threats? That's new, and that's no accident. So it's not just social media. It's the purveyors of misinformation. They're organized. They're more well-funded than we are. Come on, angel donors out there. How can the misinformers be more better-funded than we are? So they were there in our communities before we were, Our communities have been marinating in misinformation. So Dr. Dan, we got to stay the course and do things differently, or we'll lose this moment to rebuild relationships. Hey, in this room, we got competitors. Thank you, National Minority Equality Forum. You brought the competitors in the same room. We need more of that. Some would say we're speaking to the choir, but most good choirs I know, practice Mm. we gotta practice how we respond back to the misinformation that's right so the Tuskegee syphilis the US Public Health Service syphilis study done at Tuskegee really did happen from 1932 to 1972 we're at the 50 year anniversary it stopped in 1972 we're at an anniversary those men were denied treatment So the lesson today is that we should do everything in our power to ensure that these communities Mm -hmm. get treatment. So how about a little warp speed on the community engagement side? (laughs) You paid the insurance, come on, clap pharmaceuticals, you got paid first, (laughs) got paid in advance, created your market, it worked, it It worked. Now let's apply that same thing on the community engagement side. Mm -hmm. So that Terrace and I are not out begging with a cup for charity to keep this thing going warp speed us warp (laughs) speeds warp speed speed. it works
0: i'm going to in the interest of time because i want to also get to we're going to get to the audience uh our population can you (laughs) put up that slide and then uh, we'll go through our next question and then move on um i think we need to go back um so here are the other ones um we kind of, I think we've addressed this a little bit with regards to uh, ad, advocating for vaccine equity, with regards to the trust and how we get reliable information. Um, let's talk about that. Other thoughts?
2: Good. I'll, I'll chime in. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the things that we've done at, at Hopkins is we've trained our, our vaccine peer ambassadors. We um spend training on a weekly basis these are people from the communities that don't necessarily have any um, background in vaccines or vaccination so we provide information but here's where the um, the effort changes a little bit from what we've been doing in the past because sure we have a lot of data about what's happening in, uh, with COVID, with, with flu vaccines, et cetera. But what's most important is that we also hear what is happening from the community and learn how to address those things from reliable sources. So reliable sources actually become other people in the community there's a lot of providers in the community there's data that are coming from the community about the experience so we can provide the statistics about what's happening and you know there's organizations like the cdc like the government and and the hopkins university of maryland etc plenty of Plenty of places, but we need to understand that those aren't always the trusted sources. So combining trusted sources with intelligence down on the ground helps increase trust, and that's that's one of the thing, one of the places that we need to get up to date information, talk about reality in a way that um, really helps build that
3: trust
0: any other one else wanted to comment on.
3: I think for us at the hospital level is working a lot with the Department of Health and making sure we got the latest and, latest and greatest, not only data, but also using that data to project any different behaviors in our community or behaviors in the vaccine or the virus, you know? And I know we keep talking about COVID, but I also, you know, we're in the midst of, you know, ending this flu season and so many people So many people have died currently of both flu and COVID. A lot of what we've seen in the hospital is this combination because while we were busy getting people vaccinated for the COVID-19, we kind of forgot to vaccinate for the flu. So I guess my call to message and getting the most up-to-date is telling people like, hey, you can actually get both. You can get the COVID vaccine and get your flu shot. Um, And I think that was something we missed in this past um, season. And I just want to make sure that in the next coming flu season, which starts again in August, that we really take that into mind that we need to educate on both and get, have up-to-date information on both, on COVID and the flu. Because if you look at the data of this flu season compared to last season, we have more and more kids getting the actual flu, H1N1, influenza A. And is it our fault? Did we forget to misinform? But when you look at the uptake of vaccine and flu in children, it's low. So we need to make sure we kind of like catch up. So I would say getting up to date and getting ready for the next season that's coming.
4: Say, okay. so, so Dr. Dan, how, how, how can Pookie have more credibility than the doctor? How can Pookie, my cousin down the road, who's, who's, whose wife works in the health department, have more credibility than what the doctor has to say? I think it's because of the relationship. It's not a transaction, it's a relationship. We have to form relationship with these communities. They actually need to know that you care about them, that you actually love them. And so for our barbers and stylists, if you were to talk to them, they're already doing counseling and all kinds of things. So how about giving them some more training? Certified community health workers, uh, mental health first aid, okay? There are a number of things that our barbers and stylists can be trained in and they can be our intelligence service early warning signs they can see early signs of things and they see people routinely because folks want going to come back and get their hair done am i right brother you got to tell all our folks here it's not super cuts or hair cutlery <laughs> and you don't go out on your on your stylist or your barber because they can tell if you went to somebody else am i right <laughs> okay so that's relationship you need to make that's your friends before you need them yeah. let's make our friends before we need them it's a a big deal.
5: Reverend, did you have something to add? Well, sure, I would add to what Dr. Thomas and to what uh, Helen said as well, Dr. Helen. I I appreciate that. I think you can have the right message and have the wrong messenger. Correct. Because of that, you can be totally ineffective. One of the things that Lee has done Uh, and working with myself and Bishop Carter is to establish the Faith Health Alliance. So we have right now in 20 states and 25 cities across those states, pastors who are connected to us and waiting who have served as vaccine sites have served as ambassadors and promoters of health and who are waiting to go forward in terms of not just vaccines, but holistic health. Now, everyone isn't religious. So let's combine this. What I did is I left the walls of my church and I went to jazzy summer nights. I went to... (laughs) I went to where there was alcohol and music because that didn't affect any of my holiness, okay? (laughs) You combine those efforts from trusted sources with Dr. Thomas, you have the messengers that you need on stage and on this recording. You have already the disruptors of the current system, See, after pandemic, we keep wanting to go back. Let's go back to norm. No, let's go back to where the hospital, public health, stop it, stop it. My advice is let's find a way for us to continue to work together and make that the norm. Where in barbershops, churches, in events, we can reach out across the country. We have an infrastructure waiting to make an impact in the most vulnerable communities. So it's already set. So the information comes to us. I've had Sanofi, Pfizer and Hopkins in a prayer service (laughs) during the height of COVID. No will tell you that. We prayed for them, but they also gave reliable information, but it was under the coverage of me because I have served so as long as you're working with the right messenger then you can get your message out <laughs>
0: yeah hey, no i hey, think yeah
5: go
4: ahead uh, because you know reverend king, reverend king brought up uh, uh laura lee so let me give a shout out to laura lee on the other side because what we've done on the barbershop and stylist side is create what we call the wellness warriors and they come on every you know, we have a, a weekly zoom they're come on i'm a wellness warrior and they got the uh, certificates in their, in their shops and they say people come in and look at their certificates and say, how do I get one of those? And she said it was a nurse that asked her. A nurse, she said, I couldn't tell her it was just for barbers and stylists. My sense of their agency, their sense of giving back to their community is so important. And so our wellness warriors, the churches is part of the infrastructure. That's not one of the silos. That's, Don't let us go back to the silos. And don't make us have to scream and yell to get your attention. The pandemic should be more than enough disruption to say we gotta do things differently. And we can do that now by making sure that these trusted messengers have the right information. Here's what we believe. If you give people the right information, they'll use that knowledge to save their own lives. Nobody wants to be pitched. Nobody wants to be messaged. Treat people with dignity and respect. We can turn the corner here.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think this is a, this is a great discussion. Uh, so, using my uh, privileges, I think we'll we'll move on to the next one. But I, I did want to highlight just to bring everything together with regard to the trusted messengers. And, and I think the Reverend alluded to it. Um, you can have partnerships or public-private partnerships with organizations that are able to supply financial um, uh, support without um, tainting uh, the messenger. And this is what I heard in the community. Are you an agent? just a (laughs) triggering word for me, Um, but, and for others who are in the community who've been doing this work, they're in the audience here, they got awards, Um, it is important to make sure that trusted messenger is someone they can relate to, and that person has to look like the community. I had this uh, discussion and shared this with Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, former colleague and uh, advisor, and and we've been in similar circles. Uh, The Black community, personally, and this is my opinion, and I said it, doesn't want to hear from you as a white guy. I'm just calling it what it is. And we have to call truth to power and be very blunt with one another when we have these discussions in these rooms. There's a Nigerian proverb that says, when two brothers come out of a room and they're laughing and smiling, they're deceiving themselves. It means you're not actually having the truth and having a real conversation. So I think with the trusted messenger issue, you can have that public-private partnership. But the question is, where does your uh, intent lie? And that compassion and the truth and that honesty you can get a celebrity to come talk to a group of people and tell them to push a message for you people will read through that there's no authenticity in that they're getting paid and that's it but that doesn't mean other advisors who are in the community are receiving money to do the work that needs to be done so make sure we don't miss that those two things with the trusted messenger. very important yes
1: can i just you know at, at lunch we we saw the award winners for the booker t Washington award and so bear with me for a moment, it's pertinent, but what we're talking about now, trusted messengers, community engagement, community action, working with private companies, working with government, was something that 1915, Booker T. Washington announced the first National Negro Health Week. And I can't see you real well, now I can see you better. How many of you know what the National Negro Health Week is?
4: raise your hands if you've heard of the national negro health week
1: okay yeah, so i'm hands. seeing one hand go I see five. Mm-hmm. Five. okay so we see mm-hmm. a literally a handful so the national negro health week was to address communities across the country and it mm-hmm. began on sunday where dr king Church. where there was a theme for the week there was a sermon that all pastors could tailor to use as they wished or use that sermon. There was school involvement. There was community sanitation, cleanup efforts. There were clinic, there was a health clinic. When did it conclude? Of course, on Sunday in the church. The National Negro Health Movement ultimately expanded and lasted until 1954. And But it set this is a little known program that set all the principles we're talking about right now into place for how to improve a community's health, working with a community. So it's a fascinating piece of history. And Booker T. Washington obviously was onto something that now where many people are saying, oh, I've just
4: discovered this.
0: Wow. Nothing new under the sun, right?
4: Nothing new under the sun. Dr. Quinn's being so modest. She was in the library and stum- stumbled across a box, blew off the dust, and all this history is here. Our ancestors left us the roadmap forward. 1915 to 1951, the longest sustained public health campaign in history, and it came from Booker T. Washington. It's the roadmap. Dr. King follows the Black uh, Church revival. You know. That I'll- way, we can get our community engagement muscles. How about reenacting? the National Negro Health Movement. We can give it a new updated title, but let's reenact that and have people practice what it means to organize like we did back in 1915. Booker T basically said, we're gonna to have to save ourselves. And that's the message from the barbershops and salons. We're gonna to have to save ourselves. And the tools we have are tools our ancestors have literally left the roadmap for us.
0: Last word to you, uh, Reverend King, did you have something else to add?
4: Yeah, I want to I
5: say one other piece. I want to, um, and I guess this is a piece that because of the role, only I can say. Every church is not a trusted source.
4: Tell the truth. Oh, oh the truth, you hear Reverend. the grumblings. Call and response. Send in shockwaves as usual, Reverend King. Go ahead, Come tell on. us. Preach.
0: Bring it. Preach.
5: Every church is not a trusted source. And and the timing of what you just talked about in terms of that history week probably tells you where we went astray. Because after that period, then we went into civil rights, which was great. And we began to integrate into communities. But many of our churches only show care to the people who sit in their pews. Mm. We would and like they- that absolutely no empathy and no care to the community surrounding what's supposed to happen with the church real trusted sources are where the glory of God that is created and exemplified in that church is supposed to affect the community outside that church so many people want to have no dealings with the church because the church only wants to suck the resources from the community, but never give anything back. And that is all right. He's
0: not- a minister. You Peace. can Peace. say amen. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> great point. And I appreciate you bringing that up. All right. In the interest of time. So if folks have questions, please uh, go to the uh, microphone so we can try and get you in in our last 10 minutes. Don't be While shy. they're doing that, we'll get into the last question. <laughs> so if you all looked into your crystal ball, for this year, the rest of this year, what's going to happen with COVID and the flu season? Anybody want to jump out there? Uh, y'all had all these thoughts well, before. for me,
3: <laughs> you know, I guess at the hospital level, I, what I foresee is continuing and strengthening the partnership that I have here and making a new friend. Um, <laughs> but also making the work that we do with Lauralee even more embedded in our communities, making sure we're more inclusive, making sure the services that we are giving um, at Elmer's Hospital are even even more inclusive and kind of doing that deep dive, that self-reflection of like, what else are we missing? Do we need to get more barbershop? Maybe we need to have more certifications done. Do I need to give the space? Like, where do we need to do and doing that deep dive? Because part of looking at the crystal ball is also doing the self-reflection. It's going back to like, we are the choir, but we need to practice. And then we also need to see what are we doing really well Mm -hmm. and what we're not doing so well and be like very honest with each other. I'm like, okay, maybe I need to get more peer educators. So let me figure out in my budget, how do I get more? So I think for me, it's doing a lot of that self-reflection of in, at the hospital. And
0: that self-reflection is really um, more reviewing the data and letting the Correct. data inform your response and your strategy moving forward. I wanted to add one other thing. Laura Lee um, and the um, Sustainable uh, Center for Sustainable health, uh, literally uh, partnered with VoteLab um, and did some good work as health champion. So you can go to Instagram or Twitter, look up health champion, be a health champion. So you can be, be one of those, as you mentioned, you know, uh, a warrior for health I think that that's important. So those types of uh, initiatives are important. Other thoughts with regards to the crystal ball?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, my crystal ball um, is not great, but we're not done and we're not even close to done probably, as we all know. But what I would say is that it's really important. We've talked a lot about communities. We've talked a lot about building trust, building partnerships, those things. But I know Senator Kane was here earlier and his staffer may still be here. Um, We're sitting in the nation's capital. Policy issues are essential. And for us to be at a point a few weeks ago when it looked like there was going not to be money to continue free COVID vaccines would be devastating, right? So I think for all of us, organizations, individuals, pastors, et cetera, all of us, to keep our eye on what's happening both in our states and federally, that is going to support or undermine what we've been talking about. So we can't take our eye off that ball. Awesome, yes.
2: So I, I work internationally mainly, and I think there's a lesson from the world that we need to remember, and that's that we're, not all, that we're not safe until we are all safe. And I think there's an important message in COVID in that we need to look at the communities We need to be looking at the data where there's rates of vaccination that are as low as perhaps 10%. We need to have the data that we can know where do we go and where are we going wrong. It may not be a conversation about COVID or flu or anything like that. We need to be integrating our efforts into the things that the community cares about. Because until you're addressing the person or the community's needs, people aren't going to listen. And so I think we need to really continue to focus on those communities where there are issues and not worry about every single time, you know, getting to a particular number. I think we need to go to those areas where we know that there's issues and look at what can we do to start healing in those communities.
0: Thank you so much, Luis. All right, so um, we got to get our folks in. So uh, please, uh, first question, please try to keep it under 30 seconds um, and uh, we'll have uh, one of our mods answer and then we'll take turns. Go ahead and please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Bakari. I'm with um, NMQF and I was introduced earlier. you talked earlier about um people are also dealing with poverty and food insecurity and you know, rights rats biting their kids. Um and it seems to me that those problems existed before and they're gonna exist after and the core of that
5: is that well healthcare and a lot of other things people need to live are commodified.
0: Um it seems like that's often the core of the problem. Um,
5: How can we take steps towards solving that?
0: Thank you for your question. Uh, Any one of our mods want to tackle that?
5: Well, I'll take that on because I think you've just hit the real issue. And I think it's been tough for us because I think this COVID flu vaccine piece becomes a subset of a bigger piece. I think on that stage, you have the experts, who if you got them into a room, what well, we already know, we know enough to settle the issue of health inequities in our country. That's a small statement. I've read enough scholarly articles, I've said enough classes, in enough forums like the one you're in right now, we know what to do. It's a matter of scaling it, and and it's something else. It's a matter of connecting what we know to a return on investment for providers. Well said. Until this issue becomes an issue, and that's one of the reasons that I work so closely with Lois, until in Baltimore, let me be specific, There's a return on investment of improving the communities in Baltimore for Hopkins. Baltimore will never change.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Reverend. I appreciate (laughs) that question. Uh, Next question, please. Thirty seconds, please. Introduce yourself.
5: The mic over there.
0: Uh, My name is Luis Seja. I'm a third. I'm a current PGY three at Mount Sinai, New York City, in internal medicine, pediatrics. I consider myself very lucky to be able to rotate at Elmhurst. I was there just in February. And one of the things, speaking of, it's our Elmhurst community is 150 languages. And one of the reasons why we're so successful in actually uh, getting the vaccine out there and dispensing and administering is because there we have staff that, like, the chances are that a staff that speaks one of those languages Mm -hmm. is high very high even the most obscure things like Shanghainese for example um my question though is in the absence of having staff where you know you don't necessarily have to build trust with language it's inherently there how do we increase vaccine equity for patients with limited with uh, limited english proficiency thank you very much for your question anyone want to talk about really short really brief
2: uh- If I can add, one of the things that we've done in Baltimore City is given all of our ambassadors and staff working at vaccine clinics access to a Genie app. And this Genie app is is something that has access to translators. So it's something that's that's online, can be on the cell phone, and you're never going to have all of the languages available at any particular clinic but taking the time to bring somebody online that can talk to the person in front of you can make all the difference in the world. So you know, it's not a complete solution, but it's something that brings you a little bit further.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for that question. Next question, please. 30 seconds.
3: Hoppin State University again. Um, I wanted to say that I went to several of the churches to ask them, could we hold a site? at the churches and i appreciate the reverend saying about the various churches and a lot some of the churches i won't say all but some of the churches wanted to get paid in order for us to hold a site there we're vaccinating the community the other thing is i want to ask why aren't we getting some of these hbcus we put our nursing students you know in the front lines to vaccinate why aren't we using more hbcus we're in the heart of the minority community. And this is where we could be utilized in you know, recruiting some of our own community minorities.
0: Thank you so much for your question. Anybody wanna talk about 30 seconds? Oh,
2: I'll, I'll address part of that. Um, so we we actually have used uh, Coppin State, Morgan State in the communities and they are just, you're a tremendous resource. And I think we need to be doing a lot more of that. So I appreciate that, that comment completely. The other part um, of the comment was about compensating the churches. And to me, this is a valuable service that churches do provide. And I would you know, venture to say that churches should not be doing this for free. This is a service. And I think that we need to be treating this as a service that can be provided something that takes an effort and not all of the money needs to go to health systems i think we need to put the money in the community and compensate them for what they're doing
5: thank you pastor you want to comment on that 20 seconds please oh oh, no 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 no, lois is absolutely right and the applause that i can pick up is not as great as when i talked about every (laughs) not a trusted source let me say this is an issue of respect mm-hmm. there is no reason that i should be in the room with 20 doctors and everybody else is getting paid but me mm-hmm. i don't do anything for you but pray without you paying me mm-hmm. i serve my community mm-hmm. if i'm serving the community out outside of my church why shouldn't my church be paid for its rent Thank you so much, Pastor. I appreciate it. I know you're going to keep
0: it 100. Tell us how you really feel. I know. I know. I'm with you. I'm with you. I got to i got to regulate that time, but we got you on that. Uh, last question.
5: Please. Thank you. So hi, I'm Dr. Gabriel Felix. I'm a psychiatrist resident um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts at a community hospital. So in my training, I treat quite a few people with mental illness and I find myself even, you know, during my training talking about, you know, the vaccine and giving education about it. Um, particularly for my black patients, there are particular vulnerabilities they face. And so I guess my question, and thank you for much for talking about, you know, trusted messengers, is how do we keep our, you know, distrusted or like the untrustworthy messengers accountable? Mm -hmm. Uh, because I find that even with some of my patients, when I talk about the vaccine and I try to tell them to go to their PCP, if they say something like, oh, well, I heard the government did something to the vaccine, you know, the PCP will kind of like brush that off and, you know, the bias for mental illness. So how do we standardize excellence with COVID vaccine education Great um, for our hospitals and in our communities?
0: Great question. Thank you. Somebody want to take so that? 30 seconds? I,
3: you know, and I felt this through a lot during the pandemic and it goes back to my original statement of the judgment piece it's going back and like, well, okay, I understand, you know, Pookie told you this, but why don't you bring Pookie over next time in your next visit?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Was it Pookie? I don't yeah, know. Pookie. Yeah, like Pookie. everybody you know, got a for Pookie us, somewhere. It's the Doña Maria is the natural healer, is, you know, so for us, you know, like, bring him, bring her or him over, you know, so that way there is no judgment. Okay, you feel, you know, in the injection, we're gonna track you okay let's bring that over let me give you information but it's standing there and not having any judgment on the misinformation because the moment you start judging the misinformation you just give it more power and then what's the sad part the negative piece of that is that there's a patient in between that and the patient feels ashamed and as healthcare providers and as a public advocate and a community person I never want my community to ever feel embarrassed or, in, or disempowered. So for me, I'm like, let's bring Pookie over. We're gonna have a sit down, let's talk. Thanks the for the that
0: question. Put All right. them in
3: the barbecue. Sorry, thanks
0: for that question. Last question here, I'm like on the last seconds. Okay.
6: All right, thanks very much. Yep. Uh, David Kim with the National Vaccine Program in the, uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, terrific discussion. And I have a question uh, for doctors King and Thomas. Uh, and I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Quinn to uh, to address it as well. And that is, uh, we have different different communities, different minority and ethnic communities, and we, what we talked about uh, applies to uh, the community on uh, Long Sweet, Sweet Auburn Avenue in Atlanta. Uh, but uh, but there's the Deerfield, Michigan. There's the Chinatown in San Francisco and New York, and uh, and other communities of different racial and ethnic um, uh, makeup. And I'd like to ask you if, uh, since uh, uh, since the African American history is perhaps the deepest um, in, in the area of promoting uh, a, a community uh, community uh, health. Uh, what advice you would have for these other communities, uh, the the South Asian communities, the the Arab Americans, and, and others, uh, that are trying to gear up and uh, possibly emulate the uh, similar success that you might have uh, had with uh, uh, with the barbers and stylists? Okay.
4: Well, I, you know, every community has its sacred spaces, and so we find what those sacred spaces are. Um, but the other thing I've realized is that um, in the black barbershop, I put quotes, air quotes around it here, because if you actually are spending time in there, everybody's coming in. I got the Mexicans coming in, getting the special haircuts for the Mexicans. I got South Asians coming in. My point is they're not as segregated as you might imagine. And some of what we need to do is lift up some of these successes. You're hearing things here that you're not seeing on the TV news. You hear more about the barriers and the resistance on the TV news, where there's some real victories occurring. And we need to lift those up and give them more visibility. For the health professionals, uh, we need a new training platform for the health professionals. And one of the ways we've done it is to literally bring them in and let them do rotations in the barbershops and salons. And we're working on using computer simulation as another way where you can practice in an emotionally safe space what you're learning in your diversity, inclusion, and equity classes. We are so afraid of saying the wrong thing that people aren't saying anything. And it's in a space like this, we got to be able to open up and have the difficult conversations, but not be disagreeable with one another. We got to practice choir. Let's practice how we respond to the pushback that's out there. If we don't do that, we go back to our corners. And when you hear it, you just stay silent. We have to speak up in those spaces where we hear those microaggressions and negative comments and stereotypes. The community is expecting us to be like a rubber band and go back exactly the way we were, and it will confirm everything they believe. We're not going to have another pandemic as a reason to change. Let's use the one we have. Thank you, Dr.
0: Thomas. Um, Reverend, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I
5: think it's a, uh, an assumption that the African-American community has, and it's not a competition, the the strongest. Look, one of my um, closest friends, as Lois knows, is an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And we compare a lot. What he's doing that I emulate and what I'm doing that he emulates to build community and build health improvement as a part of that. First of all, when I look at that community clearly, I cannot say, and it's not a competition, that what we are doing is better. I can't say that. When you look at what it takes to build health, employment, family, education, mental health, all as a part of your community growth and process, I, I can't necessarily say the African American community is, is sitting on top of a mountain. I can learn something from him and he I can got learn 10 seconds,
0: Reverend, 10 seconds
5: Land your plane, sir I'm rolling <laughs> to stop a Baptist preacher in the middle of his sermon <laughs> Keep
0: it 100, my apologies Reverend that's my job, moderator. Got to do it. Thank you, sir.
5: You it. Got the benediction. Take it from me. <laughs> <it>. Amen. <laughs>
0: well, thank you all for being here, and uh, it's a wrap. We'll talk afterwards. Thank you.
1: That was fun.